Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, and welcome to the Outsider Art Podcast, episode 16, Henry Dajer, part 2. This episode comes with a warning. It deals with adult themes and may not be suitable for children. I forgot to mention in the last episode that I have had the opportunity to see some of Henry Dajer's work at an Auckland City Art Gallery exhibition in 2005 that was called Mixed Up Childhood. His work was included in the Adults Only exhibition that also featured Louise Bourgeois, Jake and Dinos Chapman, Morton Bartlett and Sally Mann. Seeing Daj's enormous images juxtaposed within the exhibition added to what was quite a disturbing exhibit. Would love to have known then what I know now about his life and work practices. When we last left Henry Dajer, he had just arrived back in Chicago after escaping from the Illinois Asylum for Feeble-Minded Children. He was 17. Both his parents were dead. He had family in Chicago, but they had offered little assistance to him over the past few years. He did, however, have a good relationship with his father's brother, Augustine's wife, Anna, who was perhaps his godmother. Jim Elledge says in his book, Henry Daja, Throwaway Boy, that Anna had provided some support to Henry and his father and was sympathetic to Henry's plight. Through her contacts, she was able to find Henry employment as a janitor at St. Joseph's Hospital, a menial position, but given that Henry was untrained and unskilled, one of the few jobs that he was suitable for. Henry would remain doing these sort of low-skilled jobs for the remainder of his working life, from 1909 until his retirement at age 71 in 1963. He would change his place of employment only four times during his working life. These jobs were always at hospitals, and the tasks for which he was employed were always physical and mind-numbingly dull. And although he managed to hold his positions for lengthy periods, including spending well over 30 years working at St. Joseph's, his experience at work was not without problems. His employers and colleagues, many of whom regarded him as crazy or simple-minded at best, were the cause of a lot of tension and he was often heard by tenants in the building he lived in recreating discussions and arguments between himself and the nuns who ran St. Joseph's. Apparently, he was quite a good mimic, and Nathan Lerner, his landlord, recalls in his foreword to John M. McGregor's book that a fellow tenant who, believing there was a woman in the room with him, asked Henry how long his visitor would be there. Henry's response was, What do you mean, visitor in here? I don't have any visitor in here. Henry was, however, generally perceptive and had a good enough understanding of human nature that he learned 
how to quite effectively fade into the background in his place of employment. He received his first Holy Communion in December of 1909 and had a lifelong love-hate relationship with God and the Catholic Church that would impact both his personal and fantasy life. John M. McGregor summarizes this, quote, While this renewal of his faith may initially have been comforting, his religious involvement soon became the source of considerable psychological ambivalence and spiritual confusion. End quote. Daja would attend Mass daily throughout his life, sometimes attending multiple services in a day. However, in private, when he felt he had been wronged in some way, he would frequently curse God for his situation and life events. A significant cause of upset for Daja was his inability to adopt a child, something he tried to do with Willy Schloder, his friend and partner in the Child Protection League that Daga called the Gemini. And he railed against God and the church for this supposed injustice. Daja began writing in the realms of the unreal during his first stint at St. Joseph's at around the age of 19. He would write the story in longhand and then type it out. The work, 15,145 pages long, fills 15 massive volumes and includes hundreds of paintings and illustrated artworks, some as large as 30 feet wide. On the title page of Volume 1, Daja added a curious author's note. Quote, this volume one is completely finished, and with all details confirmed as I, the writer and originator, wishes it shall be said confirmed. It shall not be duplicated, and no one shall be allowed to make statements on this story saying it is a true fact, and nothing else shall be written in it or anything else on detail thereof. Signed, H.J. Saunder Saunders, original writer. End quote. John M. McGregor comments on this. Quote, the title, with its allusion to the realms of the unreal, establishes emphatically that Daja intended to write a work of fiction, describing events occurring in a purely imaginary and non-existent world. However, unlike most novelists who seek to convince their readers, at least temporarily, of the reality of their creations, this author seems genuinely worried that someone might doubt the fictional character of his story, might actually insist on its historical reality. Since no rational reader of the realms would be in any danger of succumbing to such confusion, it seems that Daja feared such a propensity in himself. End quote. Brooke Davis Anderson, in the book Daja, summarizes the premise of the story. Quote, in the realms of the unreal is the tale of seven little girls, the Vivian girls, who set out to rescue abducted children who have been enslaved by the adult Glendalinians. The heroes in this tale are always the children, and the villains typically adults. End quote. The story is not set on Earth, but on a large planet, 
and it is the story of a war waged primarily between the Roman Catholic nations of Abiania, Calvernia and Angelinia on one side, and the evil rebel state of child slavers, the Glandolinians, on the other. John M. McGregor comments that, quote, Examination of all the volumes reveals that the work is, in its essence, the history of the war described, while it is occurring, by a journalist participant, Henry Darger himself. He continues, The central and deeply inscrutable motivation underlying the war and the writing of the book is an unresolved problem between Henry Darger and God, the so-called Arenberg mystery. It is this mysterious conflict at the heart of the story, which raises the puzzling work from historical fiction to a mythological epic, with Daja at times assuming the role of an accusing and threatening Job. End quote. The epic story is of a scale that some have posited that Daja had hypergraphia, an addiction to writing, and it is certainly true that his written output during his lifetime was substantial, bordering on compulsive. Michael Moon, in his book Daja's Resources, suggests that Daja enjoyed serialised books such as Frank Baum's Oz series, and that his own body of work was similar in that it did what Moon called sequelate, that is, require and invite continuation beyond its would-be initial ending. Books that featured in Daja's library included Don Quixote and Pilgrim's Progress. Both books were sequels, as well as Uncle Tom's Cabin, which Moon suggests had a long sequelated cultural tale within multiple adaptions in the years following its publication. It took Daja decades to write and then illustrate the realms of the unreal and similarly to the collage and trace techniques he used to create its accompanying artworks, Daja also borrowed heavily from a vast array of literature to compile the text of his story. Moon comments on this, quote, Daja not only borrows characters and situations from novels, histories, pious devotional works, newspaper comic strips and children's serial books, at times juxtaposing Mutt and Jeff, with Harriet Beecher Stowe's Little Eva, or Charles Dickens' Fagin and Bill Sykes. Daja was also reproduced in chapters from various books, with only minimal changes to things such as names and wording. His methods paid no notice to ideas of plagiarism or copyright. He included whatever he wanted or needed to create his fantasy world and his oeuvre contains a massive treasury of repurposed high and low art and literature. It is, in its own way, a random compendium of 19th and 20th century culture, rearranged and mutated. The Realms of the Unreal, which, unsatisfyingly, had anyone managed to get through the entire story, has two alternate endings. One in which the Vivian Girls and the Christian Nations triumph the other has the evil Glandolinians win out, but, as I mentioned, it is just one of the many written works that Daja composed during his lifetime, and I could go on for multiple episodes just drilling down into all of these. But I think it's time to start looking at Daja's visual accomplishments in more depth.
before I fall too far down the rabbit hole of Daja's stories. There is so much expert analysis of Daja available, and all of the texts I am currently using are a rainbow of sticky notes. So if your interest has been piqued, I would encourage you to get hold of some of the excellent books on Daja. Daja is a fascinating subject, and the research opens up all manner of interesting analysis of his work, as evidenced by Michael Moon's comments in the preface to his book, that Daja, quote, By virtue of his massive and lifelong project of writing and art, took on the role of witness to the terrible ordinariness of violence in the history of the 20th century, especially violence against children, and specifically against girls. End quote. Daja's room at 851 Webster Street was discovered to contain thousands and thousands of items of ephemera that collated the history of both Henry himself and his experience of the America of the 20th century as run through the lens of Daja's imaginary world. A recreated room still exists as the Henry Daja Room Collection at Intuit in Chicago, where you can immerse yourself in his world. He was a poor man, and much of the stuff found in his room had been recovered from other people's garbage. Newspapers and magazines clipped of relevant images were piled in corners, and the many thousands of images were either given significant place on the walls of the room, compiled in scrapbooks, or loose. There were special pictures that were framed for the wall, likely fulfilling the roles of objects of reverence. His collection was so extensive that even the enormous bound volumes of the realms had disappeared beneath the piles. Henry was most definitely a hoarder, but going through his room would have been the best ever episode of the Hoarder reality TV series. However, unlike many hoarders, much of Henry's collected materials were for a purpose, that of constructing a visual representation of his fantasy world. Henry used several techniques to create the images he used to illustrate the realms, with collage and tracing being two of the most prominent. His sense of colour is striking, and he could undoubtedly draw and paint as evidenced by the background that he painted in many of his works. Natural environments with raging skies, fantastical flora, even architectural structures were within his gamut of ability. A watercolour that has been entitled Bristletoe Station, a quietly whimsical painting of a small railway station in a bucolic environment, is a charmingly naive work that demonstrated his skills but also exposed his artistic failings. Failings which ironically led to his greatest artistic inventions. Henry could not draw the human figure in any way that fulfilled the highest bar he set for himself in his fantasy world, that of representing the ethereally beautiful Vivian girls. So Henry turned to his collection of images for help, and it was out of these that he found both the inspiration and source materials that allowed him to populate his art with authenticity. He initially started out with collaging found images, both photographs and illustrations, adjusting them 
with added costuming and colour, modifying the eyes so that they appeared to sparkle in a more lifelike manner, and constructing increasingly more detailed compositions. MacGregor comments that the Battle of Calvahine is the masterpiece of Darge's collage work. The enormous work, which is sadly deteriorating due to the materials Darge used, is epic in scale, but now almost impossible to decipher. MacGregor says of the work, quote, The picture continues the tradition of the illusionistic collages in attempting to construct a broad, deep and coherent landscape. In depicting this vast battlefield, remote from any urban centre, Daja allows us to see how war converts a beautiful portion of the natural world into hell. MacGregor continues. The more Daja sought to illustrate specific scenes from his narrative, the less successful illusionistic collage as a method of illustration would have become. Perhaps it was for this reason that he abandoned it. The arbitrary juxtaposition of fragments of mundane origin couldn't convincingly embody his unique vision. The techniques involved too many compromises. The collages were at best only partial expressions of the reality of the realms of the unreal. Henry's vision was being reduced to the mundane. His wonderfully subjective view of another world was being lost. In time, his drive for true self-expression would force him to go beyond this initial solution and to invent a more original and personal method of illustrating his vision of another world. End quote. His solution to the restrictions of collage was as idiosyncratic as his use of collage itself as a technique. To allow himself more control over his image making, Daja evolved his drawing technique through a long process of artistic struggle to create an external representation of what he saw in his head. A struggle that would be familiar to artists the world over. In the absence of an innate ability to reproduce satisfactory human figures, Daja instead reused the collected imagery that he had surrounded himself with in his room through the technique of tracing. This allowed him to use figures multiple times and in multiple configurations, tweak the original images to his requirements, and through photographic enlargement make use of original images that were too small. Daja spent a huge amount of time and effort perfecting his drawing tracing skills as evidenced by the vast amount of practice work and materials that remained in his room. We can see that he developed methods over time for how he would construct out of a variety of images his horned blinging creatures, how he would manoeuvre images into action poses, use various sized images positioned to create a sense of scale, and how he would strip the clothing to leave some of the children in his drawings naked. I have yet to mention one of the most controversial aspects of Daja's work, but since we have touched upon the idea of the modifications he made in his drawing tracings, now seems like the appropriate time to do so. Anyone familiar with Daja will know that many of his works featured naked children, primarily girls, 
and that many of these naked girls were drawn with male genitalia. This, along with his images of violent child torture and mutilation, have, of course, resulted in an array of theories about Daj's motivations, predilections and mental well-being. Whether Daja was aware that there was a difference between males and females with regards to genitalia, or whether drawing females with male genitalia was a conscious choice, is a matter for conjecture. We will look at this in more depth in the next episode, as well as exploring some of the theories that have been presented about Daja by various writers and scholars. I'd like to leave you with this quote from Michael Moon which broadens the scope of how we may approach Daja. Quote, Rather than seeing his work as providing us a window into a deeply disturbed psyche, we can take it as a series of views of many of the successes and pleasures of 20th century mass culture, as well as of the massive and recurrent racial, ethnic and sexual violence perpetrated during the same period. Rather than condescendingly and misguidedly treating Daja only as a case study, we can look into his work for what it may tell us about both the powerful allure of mass-mediated narrative and imagery and the possibility, or impossibility, of escaping the labyrinthine and often terrifying histories and politics of which we in the world today are the direct heirs. End quote. Thanks so much for listening, and a special thanks for a nice rating and review from Lindsay Ann from Japan. If you can, please do rate, review, share and follow the podcast. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook, and check out the podcast website at shows.acast.com slash outsider-art-podcast for a reading list and more episodes. Join me next time for the final episode on Henry Daja, and thanks again for listening.